Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books Network. I am your host, Paola Morales, and I am so glad to be here with Dr. H. Eric Schockman, one of the editors of Peace, Reconciliation, and Social Justice, Leadership in the 21st Century, The Role of Leaders and Followers, a 2019 Emerald Publishing book that provides a blueprint by leading world scholars and practitioners in leadership, followership, transitional justice, and international law on how people led bottom-up grassroots efforts can foster reconciliation and a more peaceable world. Dr. Eric Schockman is a public policy expert, a politics and international relations professor and humanities and center for leadership coordinator at Woodbury University. As well, he is the president and founder of the Global Hunger Foundation, which focuses on assisting women in the developing world break the chain of poverty by funding projects designed to provide sustainable development and organic farming. A link to the Global Hunger Foundation can be found in the episode notes. The co-editors of this book are Vanessa Alexandra Hernandez Soto and Aldo Boitano de Moras. Dr. Eric Schockman, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And would you mind beginning by saying a few words about yourself, how you became interested in social justice leadership, and how you came to co-write Peace, Reconciliation, and Social Justice Leadership in the 21st Century, the role of leaders and followers? Sure. Thank you for, again, the introduction and a very gracious introduction, and also for interviewing me. Um, My co-editors also want to express their sincere thanks for this recording and a little about me and how I became interested in social justice work. I started, I think, uh, goes back probably to my stint in the Peace Corps. Um, I dropped out of graduate school and joined the Peace Corps and went to Sierra Leone, West Africa. And I watched uh, the exploitation of the African workers and uh, became acutely aware of uh, of the post-colonial realities uh, that uh, the Africans are experiencing. And uh, from there, I came back and started my academic career, which eventually turned into uh, social justice, uh, both in my professional and um, vocational uh, aspirations. As you introduced, my, uh, my foundation is also working on a social justice plane. Uh, helping to feed women in the developing world. So um, my life is really dedicated to social justice and equity and and peace. And I think uh, the, that is really the sort of tenor of what I live by. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And let us now delve into questions on peace, reconciliation, and social justice leadership in the 21st century, the role of leaders and followers. To begin, can you provide the audience a window into you and your co-editor's decision in sectioning the books into the four parts, reconciliation, community building to make, build, and maintain peace, international law and social justice, and the fourth one, peace building? 
Sure. So in constructing such an effort to um, think about uh, how to present uh, the various uh, authors that we approached uh, for this volume, um, and they were international editors around the globe, um, we really thought it would be best to sort of introduce uh, the reader in um, uh, various segments of what we call our buckets of um, leading towards uh, what peace building ultimately and and peace and justice ultimately uh, is designed around. So we started with reconciliation and then let me take a moment and explain each one of these buckets, if I may. So reconciliation uh, starts with uh, the paradigm that we have a shared and common humanity. And ultimately it means forgiving uh, that we acknowledge uh, publicly in past wrongs. Reconciliation also takes generations. It's really a complex process when you think about it. It also acknowledges past wrongs leading uh, to structural um, uh, realignment. And ultimately, um, our memory, I think, is homo sapiens really is a very, very, very cognizant and important part of our brain. We, we remember through ceremonial moments, education, uh, myths, etc. So reconciliation really focuses on on um, feelings and relationships between victims and perpetrators, and ultimately, we believe reconciliation leads to a lasting peace. And I just um, will reference to, to the listeners about uh, one chapter in this particular section dealing with um, uh, Pope Francis um, and. Um, Douglas Kramer, who um, is a colleague of mine at Woodbury, wrote about uh, uh, how Francis, uh, through the, the concept of mercy, really uh, begins the amends of the um, abuse of, um, of priests against uh, children in the church. So this is the reconciliation, I think, that we see as a beginning part that really leads us down before we can even think about peace, before we can even think about uh, social justice, um, and and we can get more into this later, but it is a uh, a priori condition in all societies to be able to ask for forgiveness and move beyond uh, past wrongs and past transgressions and really begin uh, the healing process towards reconciliation. The second bucket, if you may, or the, the second part, uh, we, we just labeled community building. And, you know, we really see that peace is not something that's imposed, you know, from top down. Peace is really uh, uh, to maintain peace, especially. It's a ground up, a ground, grounding upwards uh, process. You, you need to ultimately have a community building input to leaders and followers that see um, ultimately, that regional diversity um, needs um, a special nuance given the complexities and the importance of peace education on the local level. In this chapter, we, we deal with diverse cases from Rwanda, Uganda, uh, Sri Lanka, and talk a lot about, you know, these successful peace building efforts and I think uh, it also helps to think about the repair and the cracks of the social fabric. Um, and ultimately, community healing is part of the mosaic that, you know, glo uh, global peace efforts are really, they really are important and really um, 
that really needs carry forth. And I should parenthetically say the two major foci in um, in this chapter on the, is on the role of women and youth uh, in community building for peace. And that I think we can get in more later as well. So the, th the third bucket, um, thanks to my co-editor, um, co um, uh, Vanessa Hernandez, uh, who is an international criminal lawyer um, with um, a human rights and criminal law background uh, based in The Hague. Um, we really wanted uh, to talk about international laws and, and, and social justice. And in particular, think about addressing some of the root causes of conflict through uh, the international legal system, which began in this, you know, sort of sub area with the Nuremberg trials uh, after World War II, and now has sort of crescendoed on the uh, scene with the international criminal courts. And um, you know, throughout the structures, I think what we looked at and is, is ultimately international law is really forged. Um, uh, that we started in World War II and started to, in the International Criminal Court is now unraveling. Um, there's been attacks on rule-based order and the rise of populism and destructive leadership that really has, I think, undermined this notion that um, perpetrators, um, uh, genocide uh, um, um, perpetrators, you know, these uh, rogue outlaws need to be brought to justice. And what we think that is ultimately we need to carve a space for followers to engage in uh, and also in teaching followers how to engage in intelligent disobedience when it comes to um, following uh, leaders down the wrong path. Women's voices are critical, ultimately, in the decision-making process in um, post-healing uh, modality. And I think social justice um, really has an enduring um, notion of envisioning inclusiveness, diversity, and civility. Um, in one of the chapters in this section, we deal with the Bosnia-Herzegovina genocide and as uh, one cannot lead without followers and one cannot accomplish genocide without obedient followers. So we really, you know, we really take and deconstruct this area, not from a, a legalistic perspective. I think I, we didn't want to talk beyond our audience. We wanted this to be a book that is um, readable and digestible and um, sections could be taken out by um, by themselves, but we wanted to not leave this off the table since this is really a critical part of the mosaic that we thought um, that really brings ultimately the, the focus of our last chapter, which is peace building. And we pay tribute uh, really in this chapter to uh, the peacemakers and people who make, uh, who are bridgers of peace. And there's no single way, as we've uncovered, to engage in peace leadership. It's really a collective endeavor. Um, and ultimately, uh, we need followers and leaders to get us there. And we really move into a uh, storytelling of, of the positive impact and um, that we see in the field that ultimately gives us hope for the future. So those essentially are the 
the four buckets, four parts of the book, and and I think lead a, a reader towards uh, our hopefully conclusion that um, uh, peace is a very complex, uh, um, moving, um, various uh, sliding entity that ultimately we hope that uh, everyone can be involved with clearly, but you know we can't leave out uh, the future. Um, peace construction in the world and um, and ultimately we have to teach peace and we have to begin somewhere and we think uh, teaching peace in the universities and in um, k through 12 is the place to begin thank you that was a perfect overview and now if we could focus on part one i was wondering if you could inform our audience how the contents of the section might provide a path for the united states as a whole to bend towards reconciliation through commission, perhaps uh, via was cited by chance and bringing dialogue and reconciliation in the United States around racial issues? Sure. So, you know, here's the rub of where we're at today. The book was published uh, in uh, 2020, um, and uh, we feel uh, it was timely for its publication given the social unrest we see um, in the streets of uh, cities and rural areas and suburban areas around the country today. Um, clearly the um, Black Lives Matter, um, the, um, the, um, the, the this equity, the inequity that we've caused uh, in non-recognition uh, of, of social wrongs. Uh, we've committed as a nation atrocities over time We've been uh, somehow through social amnesia, we've forgot those. And I think our history is starting to come back to haunt us. Um, and, you know, COVID is show, starting to show the sincere inequalities that we've already created in the health systems, the apartheid housing, uh, et cetera, that has really uh, caused um, uh, uh, a a disproportional um, amount of suffering among people of color in this country. So the righteous indignation now we see in the streets, and this is, you know, again, this is 401 years uh, of, of slavery in the United States, 401. Um, and that number is really um, astounding when you think about how other countries have you know, move past this and really sort of done their social um, construction of apology, reconciliation, and ultimately moving society beyond the, um, the, 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 the status quo and the, um, and which is unhealthy and moving a, a society into a much better place. I just reference in particular uh, the work being done in Canada and New Zealand. Um, most of the Commonwealth countries uh, have moved to, you know, apologize for their treatment of their indigenous populations. And it's not that it's, um, they're perfect. It's not that they've solved the uh, enigma of, of reconciliation, but they've certainly come a lot further than we have. I think I recently heard a comment by Prince Harry that also talked about this notion that, you know, you can't move forward if you don't own up to your wrongs. And really, as a society for 401 years in the United States, we 
don't, we have never apologized for, you know, bringing slaves into this country, exploiting them, and ultimately making them now African-American second-class citizens. We've done a half-step with um, uh, Japanese-Americans after World War II, where um, there was um, rec uh, reparations that uh, I should mention, minor reparations, $20,000 for the survivors. And um, um, the United States really never officially apologized it uh, gave money to, they threw money at, at the issue rather than uh, issuing a formal apology by both Congress and the established uh, uh, tentacles of, um, of, of the federal government. So uh, it's, it's astounding that we now have seen like Alice in the Looking Glass where, you know, these issues are coming back to haunt us and that and we didn't begin this process earlier, we, if we did, I should say, begin this process earlier, I think uh, today would be very different about the, um, the, um, uh, the uh, stuff, the, 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 um, the social angst happening in the street. I think what uh, Sarah Chase uh, Chance says in her uh, chapter is that bringing dialogue and reconciliation in the United States around uh, racial issues are similar to her study of what had what happened with uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, and I think that uh, ultimately has shown that other countries, not just developed countries, have gone down this path and have succeeded in moving a nation and a people uh, back together to heal past wounds. I just want to, before we leave this question, just mention parenthetically, um, I was in Rwanda for their um, 12th anniversary of their genocide. And the Rwandans also um, believed in uh, this notion of reconciliation um, and had to move beyond the, uh, the torture of uh, uh, the genocide of the Hutu and the Tutsis uh, destroying each other. So um, again, not... Um, not countries that are in the, the quote-unquote developed re realm, but these are nations who have gone uh, amok. And I think, um, you know, different parts of the world have, have shown us as a, uh, as a model why, why this is so critical. And I, you know, I think it, it is timely. I think it fits into our sort of instructions that our authors have talked about in this book, that it's really time uh, for the United States to set up a National Reconciliation Commission and let's deal with this. Let's have testimony. Let's bring reconciliation. Let's bring uh, um, compensation to the, uh, to the people uh, whose ancestors toiled and were ripped from their, their moorings to come to a country that ultimately did them wrong. Thank you. Those are very important words to hear at this time. And though I'd like to continue, I know we need to move on to part two. So could you relay the importance of the studies and stories in this section presented on youth education and also the voice of women? Absolutely. So in this section, I mean, we, we, we talk about 
both youth and and women and how both have been left off of the um the peace uh the peacemaking tables after uh post conflict so we are critically this is a critical importance and i think um just some of the uh the background of why we would even uh, move in this direction if we just think about young people they're probably half the world's population and growing and you know it's estimated that roughly 600 million youths live in you know fragile conflict prone uh societies uh they and women continue to be marginalized and undervalued and i think what we see is enough is enough youth movements are rising up around uh the world i just point to uh climate change as a exemplar of what uh, these um uh these mobilized youth um uh abilities to really sort of bring questions to the fore um um fridays uh fridays for the future or school strikes uh, sparked by greta uh, Thur- thurnberg who you know is a 17 or 18 year old um uh, uh brilliant and courageous woman um and i think there's been over 2000 demonstrations in hundreds of countries now and we see that over and over again to you know to where um it is really the 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 structure and really the the emphasis of uh, a youth voice and a woman's voice um we've seen women marching in the street as well for not only in the united states not only for reproductive rights and for um uh the fear that roe v wade may be overturned by a um uh, by probably one jurist on uh, on a, on the supreme court um and it's one vote away from uh probably having uh, women go to back alleys for abortions so you know again enough is enough and i think this notion of of empowering women empowering young people to speak their minds to organize to communicate through the internet through you know social media to bring that populace um to a decision making phenomenon so that the elected officials of the world which are mostly you know white male straight white male um decision makers are confronted with this reality you can't be blind to populations who really are subjugated to uh the devastation of when peace goes awry and again i i want to go back to rwanda in in this part too because um rwanda is a very special case um the 1994 uh, genocide against the tutsi in particular um had in just 100 days um had close to a million people dead uh, that's a phenomenal phenomenal uh piece of data when you think about our our soiled history world history and you know um it's a very powerful um chapter that talks about um um the turning to tribal courts and um in the indigenous language in uh, tutsi i believe it's called gakaka gakaka are tribal courts that were set up by the rwandan uh, post genocide government to try the perpetrators of the genocide 
And when they actually began the process, it was very clear that the the person um, who lived next to you, who might have macheted um, um, your child to death, um, is still living there. And how are you going to move beyond that? I mean, Western society is very clear, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, but, you know, turning to indigenous cultures and indigenous tribal courts, it's very, um, it's very different in the post-healing for, um, for a society like Rwanda. They couldn't afford official trials. The high-level um, officials were tried, but the lower, quote-unquote, the lower um, citizens who committed atrocities, they also had to be held accountable. And they were under the Kagakas. And it's this kind of um, formula that, that perhaps gives hope for the future of really how do we deal with, you know, other countries and other civilizations that go awry? Um, and how does a post-conflict, situ- a post-genocide uh, a situation get repaired? Uh, one of the chapters, uh, Enigre and uh, Richards, um, uh, they actually do some methodology in this chapter, which um, uh, which is very interesting. They take 18 to 22-year-old diverse socio-historical um, um, uh, youths into um, who were born in a family with at least one parent survivor um, who was a perpetrator or a bystander. And uh, out of that, they did six focus groups and inter- interviews, and their findings is actually was actually fascinating. Um, they found that you know from uh, from their study that you know the youth wanted to push for more education and bring film and music and drama and sports uh, to bring about unity and reconciliation. Um, the interethnic, um, uh, the issues of interethnic marriage also, you know, came out, you know, between the Hutu and the Tutsis. Uh, they wanted to move beyond that, much like we moved beyond um, the, the phobia of interracial marriage uh, with loving versus uh, uh, Virginia. And I think that notion um, is very clear. They also wanted policy changes on the governmental level to, to bring uh, a new society forward. So uh, these stories, and I think these studies really uh, presented in this chapter, uh, really uh, do talk about um, a, a new voice that we've not uh, paid tribute to. They've been around for, for, for eons, but uh, I think with the internet, with um, organizing much easier through uh, social media, they've been able to communicate with each other and ultimately use that as a way to communicate uh, to the powers that be and bring a better society forward. Thank you. This is wonderful. And again, I could speak all day on this and uh, they all have to move to part three. And uh, something that really stuck out to me was the reference in chapter nine, women's post-war activism in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Mm-hmm. A Human Rights Approach to Peacebuilding and Reconciliation Through Liminal Space by Irene Ibrahim Mefendek and Randall Joy Thompson on the close relationship between leaders and followers and the quote that followers created leaders. Could you speak on this reflection 
of peace, reconciliation, and social justice leadership in the 21st century, the role of leaders and followers, and the bond between leaders and followers and the making of leaders by followers? So, you know, it is always a, a quandary of, of leadership studies that um, followers are left off the, uh, the, the scale of, of discussion. And leaders, you know, I can go on for probably hours to talk about my, uh, my uh, ultimately um, uh, disillusionment with, uh, with leadership uh, studies as a field, which has really blossomed over the last 40, 50 years. And I, and I, and I love um, one of my colleagues at Harvard, Barbara Kellerman, who wrote a book, uh, The Death of Leaders. And um, and, you know, she basically says, okay, so we've had all these great leadership study um, disciplines in universities, and we've, you know, we have a whole industry of, of development for leaders in private sector, corporate settings, nonprofits. And then she's, and then she, you know, sort of um, opines in the book, do we really have better leaders after all these decades? And she comes out with basically the conclusion: No. So we have an industry, a complex, you know, a a leadership development uh, 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 industry that ultimately has produced a lot of, you know, rhetoric and a lot of studies and a lot of dis, you know, discourse. But there's been very little substantive training of, you know, helping society as a whole move past its. Uh, its quandary of, of, of finding the search for better leaders. And so here comes the, um, the enigma that's, you know, the discussion of the intelligent, uh, disobedient uh, follower. Um, you know, followers have uh, an ability to ultimately become leaders. Uh, this is uh, James McGregor Burns' um, formulistic uh, way back in the 60s and 70s of talking about transformational leaders and ultimately how people, very few people like a Gandhi uh, or a Martin Luther King um, could transform uh, masses of people into their own leaders. Um, leaders should go away. People ultimately should become leaders. You know, it, Gandhi didn't want to keep leadership against the British as his solo pilot uh, formula, his ego-driven formula. He really released the people of the country to become their own leaders through nonviolence. Same thing with Martin Luther King. Um, the civil disobedience, civil rights movement in the United States, John Lewis being part of that, uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, this, is the, this is the way that leaders really should be departing their true leadership to uh, the followers below them. So I think this notion of, of, of this chapter that, you, that you, um, you pulled out is very much cognizant that leaders and followers, um, leaders do create followers and, and, you know, the followers must become their own conscious leaders. And again, when leadership goes in the wrong direction, uh, it's important for leaders to be, um, for followers to check leaders. Um, and another book I wrote um, uh, 
few years ago, um, I interviewed Edward Hollander, who is uh, the father of inclusive leadership. And, and um, Hollander said, um, what we really need uh, is, he called it idiosyncratic credits. And I said, Dr. Hollander, what do you mean by idiosyncratic credits? He said, it's very simple. Think of a psychic bank where followers deposit credits for their leaders. And leaders go out and, you know, say things and do things. And, you know, people, the followers allow these credits to build up. But when leaders don't deliver on their promises or they don't build walls as they promised or, you know, they don't save us from a pandemic, those credits then, like a psychic bank, uh, get withdrawn by the followers. And I think, you know, this notion that Hollander was talking about was so cogent to the reality today that, you know, it's this relationship that followers really are check mechanisms for, you know, um, military units to police organizations, uh, to other entities that really need to, um, to prevent leaders from doing right. I mean, supporting leaders to do right and preventing them from doing wrong. And this is, I think, the raison d'etre of this chapter and really this uh, part three, because, you know, we're, we're asking that, you know, to, to stop being sheep. And, you know, we, we have a, a culture of, of, you know, of conformity. And, you know, the Milligram studies um, back in, I guess, the 40s and 50s, the Zimbard, Zimbardo studies about um, prisoners in his Stanford experiments shows that as a, as a species, we believe authority is always right. And therefore, we take that, we believe and we follow. And we are regimented in our followership without, to a large degree, uh, being the nonconformist, you know, raising uh, the truth and the truth flag that ultimately should stop um, bogus and and bad leadership. If if Hitler had, you know, um, a, um, a a a a a followership that really sort of questioned uh, the Third Reich and its notion of eugenics and. And, and taking people into concentration camps and exterminating everyone other than the Aryan race, whatever that is, um, you know, the war would have been won much sooner. Uh, clearly, as the you know, Nazis marched over Europe and, you know, tried to get into Russia, um, you know, we saw this, this mass conformity, this, you know, almost, you know, drinking from the same Kool-Aid um, uh, of of hysteria where you know populism and nationalism collide with this you know charismatic leader that becomes uh, in times of of going wrong uh, despotic and I think we see it now in countries outside the United States and I'll bet I'll even say in the United States um, where we now have to look at ourselves and say. What is our role as followers? Um, followership is not a bad term. It is, you know, somehow leadership studies has always elevated the leader. 
You know, we all want to be leaders. We all want to, you know, run the ship. Well, it's not simple as simple as that. And I think when we stop and really reflect on our leadership um, conundrum, as Barbara Kellerman talks about, you know, we are at the end of our sort of rope of producing better leaders. And, you know, what are we teaching our, our, our students in, you know, graduate schools today and PhD studies about leadership? I mean, it, to me, it's, you know, it's the concentration only on the leadership side and not on the fellowship side. Thank you. That's very important. And moving on to part four in the 16th chapter, Beyond Ubuntu, what the world can learn from building community from Africa. Can you please provide the audience a look into African models of leadership and peacebuilding practices as it relates to decolonizing peacebuilding, of which is noted at the beginning as a new discourse? Sure. Well, let me let me start off with an African proverb, which I think is uh, indicative of uh, looking at uh, Umbutu and this notion of of a um, of a African model of leadership and peacebuilding. The African proverb goes as such. Quote, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together, unquote. I think this notion really sort of sums up Umbutu, which um, is roughly translated is uh, to something, I am because you are. I am because you are. And it's, it's really, uh, Umbutu is a meaning of really the quality of, of, of the human being. It manifests itself through various acts and I think is, you know, is clearly an African philosophy of building community and peace. And it's um, uh, through a person, um, a person is a person through others' eyes and through others' um, worldview. And the African proverb I, I quoted um, reveals a worldview that we are to, I think, bring uh, selfhood to others, that we are first and foremost social beings, and that, if you will, no man or woman is an island. So as sort of Africans would believe is, you know, one finger cannot pick up a grain. I love that. One finger cannot pick up a grain. Umbutu is, um, at the same time, a deeply personal philosophy that calls on us to mirror humanity for each, 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 each other. Um, it's a traditional leadership practice that has been uh, for uh, centuries developed in Africa, and, and it's uh, deeply re- relational. Um, it places value on really the individual and the community, and it's building uh, also... Um, in this chapter, uh, in part uh, four, um, Umbuto is, uh, is being examined through uh, two sister organizations that have pan-African uh, philosophies of thinking about um, Umbuto, the African Leadership Academy and the African Leadership University. Um, Desmond Morris, um, um, I think also sort of embodies this notion of uh, his preaching uh, of Umbutu. And he said at one point, my humanity is caught up and bounded in you. 
it's a connection really to also um, to I think if you stretch this a bit, it's not just a it's not just a um, a uh, African leadership style. It's also we can think about our own uh, Western leadership development and some of the um, notions of how um, intelligent um, uh, emotional intelligence um, is um, has been developed as a field within um, the uh, psyche of leaders. Emotional intelligence um, and is now something that the Harvard Business Report has been talking about. Uh, there's a global empathy index of the you know Fortune 500. And um, we're talking about leaders who stop thinking only about themselves and really translate their organizations first and, and foremost. And it's not some gratuitous it's, um, formula. It's not some, um, you know, um, uh, uh, spurious um, uh, entity that somehow is a tokenism of, of, the, of the other, but it, it's a true meaning that I think uh, even CEOs today are starting to pay homage to corporate social responsibility efforts. And clearly the nonprofit sector, I think, uh, uh, understand Ubuntu in a Western um, uh, formula as, as we would understand it. But in, in the African sense, it's, um, it's, it's, it's also healing old wounds. It's also, you know, these wounds caused in part by colonial post-colonial globalized society today, which, you know, in a large degree, you know, globalism has, um, as we can see uh, with the pandemic, has, uh, you know, really exposed the haves and the have-nots uh, of what uh, the uh, liberal, neoliberal economic model uh, coming from the Chicago School has really developed into. Um, and I think it creates uh, also, Umbuto creates also a story, it, it creates a platform for storytelling, um, and it mobilizes collective action in the process. And I just, um, I just remember one of our greatest presidents, uh, um, President Lincoln, uh, was a phenomenal storyteller. He gave orders to his generals uh, fighting a civil war uh, by telling stories. And this is the this is the kind of leadership that Umbutu talks about because you know African storytelling is also an oral history that tells one generation to another about you know what it was like and where were we going in the future uh, inclusive in the past and I think Umbutu is really that that um, that formalistic way that Africans have a way to really teach uh, the Western society about what do we think about for future uh, reconciliation and healing our wounds and ultimately moving past um, our discourse within, this, within the current reality. Thank you, really appreciate that. And last, I know that there has been a lot covered, but do you have any additional thoughts that you would like to bestow upon our audience and how this important source can teach us as a global human race and society, as followers and leaders use our individual and collective actions to alleviate toxic political climates, human rights abuses, and smaller to larger systems of injustice? 
So in the introduction, uh, my colleagues and I talked about what do we, you know, we look back and we thought, wow, this is a massive field. And we're seeing it through the lens of leaders and followers. And if we talk about peace and reconciliation and social justice through that lens, what's missing? And we found, I think, maybe the juggernaut of what's missing. And it's not the key, but I think it's a key to further discussions that ultimately, I think, transgress into many of the the points I raised in this um, in this interview. And in the um, in the um, introduction, we talk about the decoloniality of um, of leadership, decolonializing leadership as a as a subset of really thinking deeply about. What what are we missing? What is the what is the variable that that ultimately we're, we we don't understand? And let me just for the for the audience take a moment and just you know talk a bit about decoloniality because I think before you can talk about decolonializing leadership, you first have to take a step back. So, you know, it principally emerged uh, from a lot of the Latin American movements focusing on critical indigenous methodologies and. You know, I can talk about the Zapatista movement of, to, for self-government out of the hegemony of Mexico or the landless workers movement in Brazil. But it was a response ultimately to um, decolonializing of the global south and the cultural, social, political domination of European Western penetration that colonialism, imperialism, and now globalism has ultimately um, brought forward. And I think eliminating these sort of Western European models of thinking for, you know, people not only in the global South, but also in the global North. These challenges ultimately talk about, you know, this, um, that modernity itself is really a, um, a falsity because it's a colonial modernity that we, we are inheriting as globalization, I think, has, has, has shown us. So, that as a as a as a sort of premise, I think what we are arguing in the introduction that sets the framework for the book is that you know we need to decolonialize leadership theory and peace building and ultimately think about that for future research and examination. And decoloniality is really a positive disruptor with new voices of indigenous followers and. Um, I hate to quote myself, uh, but I will in the in the introduction uh, because it's a short um, quote, and I think it sums up what I um, what I want to say. So, bear with me. It, um, the quote is in the introduction: "The importance of decolonialization of our thinking around peace, conflict resolution, reconciliation, and social justice." especially as it pertains to leadership and followership theory and practice, is the paraxis of this volume. The logic of decolonialization is simple yet complex. It involves the intense lived experience of those at both ends of the modernity-coloniality complex. It challenges the dominant global capital world order from the voyages of the 15th century European explorers to the ossification of the post-Cold War neoliberal um, globalization process that has left 
its scar, scarred legacy in post-colonial classification of class, gender, sexuality, masculinity, femininity, gay, straight, transgender identities, and power relations between the global north and global south. Behind the veil of the struggles between development versus underdevelopment, exploited versus exploiter, decolonialization puts a laser focus on the intersectionality of war, genocide, and the systems that create epistemicide, epistemicide, the annihilation of indigenous knowledge for a global north-centric reality. Decolonialization offers a counter-narrative to the global north-centric hegemic social, political, economic structures and might be the juggernaut preventing a lasting peace. It also allows us to overcome stigmata, polarization, resentment, and it moves us closer to promote relationships of trust, inclusion, and equality. If the narratives of those most impacted by conflict are not brought into the post-healing process, can we ever move past a pseudo-peace? As the chapters in this book demonstrate, bringing forward the strength and resilience of survivors, peacemakers, and human rights defenders can bring agency for healing and empowerment. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Eric Schachman. That was a perfect quote. And I, I really appreciate you giving us an in-depth look into peace, reconciliation, and social justice leadership in the 21st century, the role of leaders and followers. And if possible, before we end, could you provide the audience a bit on what you're currently researching or working on at this time? Sure. I'm working now uh, with my colleagues um, in um, Chile, um, where I just spent... Um, my sabbatical um, before the COVID um, uh, pandemic forced me to come back earlier. But uh, we're looking at um, the um, interesting formula of exceptionalism uh, within uh, both Chile and the United States. And this whole notion of what does exceptionalism mean uh, both in a Latin American context and within the U.S. context. And uh, we're beginning uh, our journey towards interviewing a lot of the decision-making decision makers, not only in uh, the Chilean um, uh, motif, but also in the U.S. Uh, uh, decision-making uh, order. So it's been a fascinating journey to think about uh, how this uh, fall from grace of other nations who also, and emperors who practice exceptionalism, the Romans, the, you know, the Greeks, uh, the Byzantine, uh, the, uh, the British, and, you know, what exceptionalism is both a myth and a reality. And we've started to um, explore that as, a, as a, uh, uh, our investigations that I think will prove very fertile in giving us um, a, uh, a, a new pointer in looking especially at uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy and Latin American foreign policy. Thank you. And I look forward to hearing more about that in the future. And I want to thank you so much, Dr. Eric Schockman, for being on the New Boats Network and for providing our audience wisdom on peace, reconciliation, and social justice leadership in the 21st century, the role of leaders and followers. I've really enjoyed our time. Same here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And stay safe, everybody.